The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas Continuing his Sermon for Christmas The Incarnation We are celebrating the Savior's birth on earth. But before speaking of that birth, let us say something of the words divine and eternal birth. The Father eternally begets His Son, who is like Him and co-eternal with Him. He had no beginning, being in all things equal to His Father. Yet we speak of the Son being born for us from the Father's bosom, from His substance, as we speak of the rays coming forth from the bosom of the Son, even though the Son and its rays are but one and the same substance. We are forced to speak thus, recognizing the inadequacy of our words. Were we angels, we would be able to speak of God in a far more adequate and excellent way. Alas, we are only a little dust, children who really do not know what we are talking about. The Son, then, begotten of the Father, proceeds from the Father without occupying any other place. He is born in heaven of his Father, without a mother. As sole origin of the most blessed trinity, the Father remains the Virgin of virgins. On earth, the Son is born of His Mother, Our Lady, without a Father. Let us say a word about these two births, for which we have true and certain proofs. The Evangelist assures us that the Divine Word became flesh in the Most Holy Virgin's womb when the angel announced to her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. This is not, of course, to say that in Jesus Christ there are two persons. In the hypostatic union, the Word become flesh is true God and true man, and this without any separation from the moment of his conception. Some examples may help. Naturalists tell us that honey is made of a certain gum called manna, which falls from the sky, and unites or mixes with flowers, which in turn draw their substance from the earth. In joining together, these two substances result in the one honey. In our Lord and Master, divinity has similarly united our nature with his own, and God has made us sharers of the divine nature in some fashion, for he was made man like us. Note that there is a difference between honey collected from time and all other kinds. It is much more excellent than that called Heraclean, which is made from the aconite and other flowers. As soon as we taste it, we recognize that it is from thyme, because it is both bitter and sweet. Heraclean honey, on the other hand, causes death. It is similar with our Lord's sacred humanity. Springing from Mary's virginal soil, his humanity is very different from ours, which is wholly tainted by corruption and sin. Indeed, because the Eternal Father willed His only begotten Son to be the head and absolute Lord of all creatures, He willed that the Most Holy Virgin should be the most excellent of all creatures, since He had chosen her from all eternity to be the mother of His divine Son. In truth, Mary's sacred womb was a mystical hive in which the Holy Spirit formed this honeycomb with her most pure blood. Further, the Word created Mary and was born of her, just as the bee makes honey and honey the bee, for one never sees a bee without honey, nor honey without a bee. At his birth, we have very clear proofs of our Lord's divinity. 
angels descend from heaven and announce to the shepherds that a Savior is born to them. Magi come to adore him. This clearly shows us that he was more than man, just as, on the contrary, his moaning as he lies in his manger, shivering from the cold, shows us that he was truly man. Let us consider the Eternal Father's goodness. Had he so desired, he could have created his son's humanity as he did that of our first parents, or even given him an angelic nature, for it was in his power to do so. Had he willed to do so, our Lord would not have been of our nature. We would not then have had any alliance with him. But his goodness was such that he made himself our brother in order that he might both give us an example and render us sharers in his glory. It was for this reason that he willed to be of Adam's seed, of Abraham's seed, for the most holy virgin was indeed of Abraham's race. I leave you at the feet of this blessed mother and child, so that like little bees you may gather the milk and honey that flow from these holy mysteries and her chaste breasts, while waiting for me to continue, if God grants us the grace and gives us the time. I beg him to bless us with his benediction. Amen. Sermon 8 Spiritual Circumcision and the Sacred Name of Jesus Sermon for the Feast of the Circumcision of Our Lord, January 1, 1622 When the eighth day arrived, on which the child was to be circumcised, he received the name of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 the days, months, and years all belong to God, who made and created them. The ancients had so arranged these days and years that they named and identified them according to the phases of the moon and named them after their false gods, such as Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and the like. So widespread was this superstition that it was very difficult to uproot. To eradicate it, the Church dedicated feast days to the saints. But even though some of our feasts are dedicated to the saints, all are consecrated to our Lord, who made them and to whom they all belong. This is why the Church dedicates to Him this feast, which occurs on the first day of the year, and through it the entire year is dedicated to Him. Today we are celebrating the Feast of the Circumcision of our Divine Savior, when, after his circumcision, he received the sacred name of Jesus. The story of the circumcision is wonderfully beautiful, and it is a figure of the spiritual circumcision we all ought to undergo. Although the shortest of all those read during the year, today's gospel is nevertheless lofty and very profound, for it mentions blood and the name of Jesus. And in these two words, the whole story of the circumcision is told. I will follow the structure of the gospel and divide this sermon into two points. In the first, we will talk about the nature of circumcision and our own spiritual circumcision. In the second, we will discuss how reverently the sacred name of Jesus is to be pronounced. Concerning the first point, circumcision was a kind of sacrament in the old law and signified purification from the stain of original sin. It was like a profession of faith in the expectation of our Lord's coming. Those circumcised became children and friends of God 
instead of his enemies as they had been before. Of course, our divine Savior had no need of circumcision. Not only was he the law's maker, but he had no stain or trace of sin whatsoever. He was the unspotted and all-holy Son of God. From the moment of his incarnation, he was filled with every kind of grace and blessing of body and soul. Because of that strict union of the humanity with the divinity, he not only overflowed with the fullness of grace, but his all-glorious soul enjoyed the clear vision of God continually. Thus there was no need whatsoever to subject himself to the law of circumcision. Nevertheless, he willed to submit himself to it. Also, circumcision distinguished the people of God from other peoples. But our Lord had no need of being marked with this sign of distinction, since he himself was the seal, or very stamp, of the Eternal Father. He was in no way obliged to submit to it. He willingly submitted to it only in order to give us an outstanding example of the spiritual circumcision which we ought to undergo. Circumcision is performed on the part of the body most damaged by Adam's sin. This is the first remark made by the early fathers and by St. John Chrysostom. Their point is to show us that our spiritual circumcision ought to be done on that part of our person most damaged. Many, if not all, Christians are willing enough to undergo spiritual circumcision in order to take part in today's feast. But unfortunately, they make this circumcision in that area which needs it the least. There are some who are imprisoned in sensual pleasures. They are in constant pursuit of these brute pleasures. When they want to undergo a spiritual circumcision, they take money and give alms. Now, of course, it is a good thing to circumcise one's wallet in this way and give alms. The Apostle assures us that almsgiving is a good thing. But do you not see that that spiritual circumcision is not what is really needed in this case? Do not circumcise your wallet, you pleasure-seeking people, for your sickness is not there. Rather, circumcise your heart by cutting off evil language, friendships and conversations. Cut off this evil flirting and other such foolishness. Begin there if you want to undergo a good circumcision but they do not do it. Instead, they continue to follow their animal instincts while congratulating themselves on giving alms, fully convinced that they have satisfied everything in that. There are others greedy to amass and possess all sorts of riches, goods, and comforts. Wanting to circumcise themselves, they keep vigils and observe great fasts and abstinences. They wear a hair shirt, belts, and all the rest. And in doing all this, they consider themselves almost saints. <laughs> what nonsense! Vigils and fasts are good, but you are not on target in this spiritual circumcision because you have not begun where it is most needed. The evil is in your heart, and you kill your body. You must circumcise your purse, distributing your goods to the poor. Uproot from your heart that unrestrained greed for riches, honors, and conveniences which is found there. Skillfully and ruthlessly apply the knife of circumcision to your heart and to those affections most damaged by sin. This has been taken from the Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas, translated by Nuns of the Visitation and edited by Father Louis S. Fiorelli, OSFS. 
published in 1987 by Tan Books and Publishers Incorporated, Rockford, Illinois, and aired with permission of the publisher. This book may be purchased online at www.tanbooks.com or by calling toll-free 1-800-437-5876.